Mr. Chief Justice, President Eisenhower, Vice President Nixon, President Truman, Reverend Clergy, fellow citizens. The world is very different now, for man holds in his mortal hands the power to abolish all forms of human poverty and all forms of human life. Let the word go forth from this time and place to friend and foe alike that the torch has been passed to a new generation of Americans born in this century, tempered by war, disciplined by a hard and bitter peace, proud of our ancient heritage, and unwilling to witness or permit the slow undoing of those human rights to which this nation has always been committed and to which we are committed today at home and around the world. And around the world. Let every nation know whether it wishes us well or ill that we shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. This much we pledge and more. We pledge our word that one form of colonial control shall not have passed away merely to be replaced by a far more iron tyranny. We shall not always expect to find them supporting our view, but we shall always hope to find them strongly supporting their own freedom. And to remember that in the past, those who foolishly sought power by riding the back of the tiger ended up inside. This much we pledge and more. This much we pledge and more. And more. In the early years of the 20th century, this new generation, the GI generation, was born just at the end of an era of loathing toward children, because the lost generation was disproportionately employed full-time as kids, involved in criminal activity as kids, shipped off to reform schools as well as juvenile prisons, the first juvenile prisons in North America. And so everyone was kind of watching these new kids to be the better version that are, you know, pure. They were one of the most over-mothered generations. They were the first children to be affected by food safety laws that kept chemicals and uh, filth out of their food and milk. And then they are really given the keys to like, superpower America as we're becoming this sort of, like, fledgling um, worldwide power. Uh, the book that I like says, No other generation this century has felt or been so Promethean, so godlike in its collective world-bending power, 
nor has any been so adept in its aptitude for science and engineering. GIs invented, perfected, and stockpiled the atomic bomb, a weapon so muscular it changed history forever. In JFK's speech uh, at his first inaugural, inaugural address, he specifically says that that the torch has been passed to a new generation of Americans, Americans born, born in this, in this century. century. You know, so there's this uh, really deliberate effort to like seize power from anyone born in the 1800s. So now the GIs are here and they're going to run everything. You have a big wave of kind of progressive concern about the cost of industrialization, about the like social and moral costs. You know, there's push for labor laws and stuff, and there's a struggle about this that that goes sort of onward through basically the Great Depression and then is more or less resolved uh, for the moment at, like, the New Deal. With the GI generation, the cliche is, like, they always got along so well. You know, mm-hmm. even before, like, everybody's watching Johnny Carson at night and stuff, they as kids, had been cohesive, you know? Like, I think it it partly could just be the um, atmosphere of World War I. Like, there's this unmatched, in modern times, attack on dissent and the First Amendment. Their entry into the professional world is during the Great Depression. And Mm -hmm. all that anyone is... Anyone in a position of authority is telling them the whole time they're coming up is you have to help out, you have to share, you have to be a team player. And I think like a year ago, I shared with you this quote that um, even the communists of the GI generation said had this leaflet that they would pass out that said something like, we're just like anyone else, except that we believe in dialectical materialism. <laughs> this is really the time when the United States starts to understand itself as like a major global power. Uh, so like around this time is also when we're fighting the I think the Spanish-American War started in like 1898 or uh, so somewhere around there. Um, and ended with us having um, a functional colony in the Philippines. Um, yeah, the, like the... Um during the infancy of the oldest GIs, TR is president. Yeah, so it's exactly. kind of like the beginning of like the 20th century imperial project. Yeah, and so, and so that's just kind of the backdrop that this generation is growing up into. And then also on the flip side of that, the um, the literal expansion, literal like geographical expansion of manifest destiny is really coming to a close because we've basically, you know, yeah, colonized coast to coast. Yeah. And, you know, like the, there's probably, you know, there's still like real estate out in California and mm-hmm. the other Western states. And th- these will be the youngest members of the house when we get Alaska and Hawaii. To become a man is a difficult job that takes a lifetime. I don't disagree with that at all. I didn't think you would. But um, I take that for granted. I really do. Ah, that, you see, but by taking it for granted... When when segregation is really going to, like, come to a head in the 60s, it's sort of bizarre how well-mannered they are about all of it. Like, the, if you, there's these bizarre, like, debates from the late 50s, early 60s, where there will be, like, a racist and either MLK or Malcolm X, and they'll just be, like, debating. (laughs) Anywhere is well within his right to do whatever is necessary, by any means necessary, to protect his life and property, especially in a a country where the federal government itself has proven that it is either 
in, unable or unwilling to protect the lives and property of those human beings. Just before Pierre takes it, you've got a pretty good fighter and the world's heavyweight champion lined up with you to help out. Yes, Pierre. <laughs> Well, Mr. X, if I guess I call you that, is that a proper uh, appellation, yes. Mr. There are X? There all these inefficiencies. There's all these like holes mm. that our like dumb grandparents have like left around, and it's time for us to you know like patch it up. You know? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like the pressure on the Burger Court, large or on the Warren Court, was largely just about these criminal decisions, where Nixon mm. really ran on this Supreme Court is too friendly to criminals, so we got to have law and order, and that's going to start with a remade Supreme Court that isn't so friendly to these formalistic grants of constitutional rights on criminal defendants. And there's a Strom Thurmond speech from the 60s. As you well know, I did not support him when he became an associate justice. uh, Whether he was kind of a reportist to be Chief Justice, and that Strom Thurmond says, well, you know, I'm opposed to letting criminals off on technicalities. Legally, I am strongly opposed to turning loose criminals on technicalities. I am strongly opposed to communists working in defense plants. I am strongly opposed to communists teaching in schools and colleges. I am strongly opposed to the Supreme Court, the federal government invading the rights of the states. And Justice Fortas has participated in decisions that do the very things I've just mentioned. I am familiar with his decisions. I am familiar with his positions. But the reason I'm asking these questions is to build a record so the Senate itself will know his positions and the public will know his positions. At first, impeachable Warren was just like a joke. It was just something racist yahoos were saying in the South. But the stuff that really was starting to get traction in terms of public perception of the court was the stuff about crime. Kalberger, Rehnquist, and Blackman become the conservative wing, basically, although Blackman is ultimately going to be more of a swing vote. And then Douglas, Marshall, and Brennan are still around. So that's sort of the, the leadership of the liberal bloc. And then Potter Stewart and Byron White end up being the sweet boats. Advocacy of abstract doctrines. The discussion of, uh, of abstract theory was never intended to do that, and it doesn't do that, and no one should be in any doubt in California about the reach of the criminal syndicalism law. This younger case begins with this effort to... Uh, temper the political dissent in California through some kind of like syndicalism control legislation. The plaintiff uh, Harris says that he was indicted for violating the Criminal Syndicalism Act uh, for distributing and circulating leaflets bearing the imprint of the Progressive Labor Party. Uh, That's all he was doing. It's uh, pretty hard to see how he was violating the statute, as you say, it's now been authoritatively construed. We don't know, Your Honor. He's never been tried. No. Maybe he was not in violation of the statute. I wouldn't, I, no one can say at this point. That's the purpose of the whole trial system. Yes. The reason for this bill is to quiet down some of the riots that have been going on on the West Coast. Professor Harris himself is a communist academic who is teaching a lot about communism and Marx. California is trying to really crack down on these left-wing dissidents. The case that they rely on at the trial and early appellate phases is Whitney, which is overturned by the Supreme Court of Brandenburg in 1968. 
So this case lands on the Supreme Court's desk that relies on precedent that they've just overruled. And what's at issue is a law that's very similar to the law that was struck down in Brandenburg. Same arguments made, although I will say, down below, great reliance was placed on Whitney by the district attorney, constantly asserting that Whitney governed and that should be the end of it. And what comes out of that is this abstention doctrine where federal courts are supposed to wait on the outcome of state litigation before they weigh in on the constitutional merits of a criminal defendant's objections to the prosecution. This case is not about whether or not this law violates the First Amendment. Uh, This case is about a kind of procedural mechanism that prevents the court from having to decide whether or not this violates the First Amendment. That, I think, is is something that's important in, in terms of thinking about Younger and its progeny, but also about one of the one of the argumentative moves that this court makes to sidestep issues that are controversial. Mm-hmm. The question presented in this case is whether intelligence tests and a high school graduation requirement may be used as a prerequisite to promotion from the job of laborer to the job of coal handler and perhaps other job jobs at Respondent's Power Plant. Griggs v. Duke Power Company, uh, which was, yeah, it was decided during the same term, is basically about employment discrimination and specifically about Duke Power Company in the 50s had policies that prohibited black employees from holding certain positions in the company. But in the wake of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, they were no longer allowed to have a policy on the books which said that black people were not allowed to have certain kinds of jobs. And so they uh, implemented a series of aptitude, che- uh, aptitude tests that resulted in the black employees not getting not getting the same kind of placement rate as their white counterparts um, and not getting the same the same jobs. But if the test that's used, or the educational requirement that's used, screens out members of a race or of a group protected by the statute and does not predict who can do the job, then it cannot be justified merely on the basis of good faith. In general sort of discrimination cases, you're looking for somebody that says, like, you're not allowed to do this because you're black or you're a woman or etc. Here you have no explicit policy, so there needs to be a different kind of explanation of why, of how we know discrimination is happening and like why it's uh, illegal. Such a test would be an invitation to many who would seek to evade the statute uh, to hide behind the uh, concept of good faith. Woods is a unanimous decision. It's 8-0. Uh, Brennan doesn't take part in the, in the case. It develops what is called uh, disparate impact theory. Basically, the thrust of disparate impact theory is that even when there's no explicit policy of discrimination on the books, uh, you can infer a discriminatory process by virtue of a really lopsided set of outcomes. We'll hear arguments next in number 301, Bivens against uh, six unknown agents. Uh, Bivens is a case about a guy who was uh, home was raided by um, some federal narcotics officers without a warrant. And um, they tried to file charges, then they dismissed the charges, and Bivens tried to file a lawsuit. Um, and under federal law, Section 1983 of the Civil Rights Act, um, 
people can file lawsuits against state officers for violating people's constitutional rights, but there's no statutory framework for for suing federal officers uh, for violating constitutional rights. So that's uh, how this case was brought all the way up to the Supreme Court. What is the responsibility of the courts when an aggrieved citizen enlists their aid to vindicate a claim based on a naked violation of the Fourth Amendment? Of course the government, the executive, insists the court shouldn't act. They argue, and I quote, that there must be showing of utmost necessity, must be vital, indispensable, essential, and absolutely necessary. And having themselves so restrictively set the stage and the question to be decided, they proceed to argue that ineffectual state remedies are nonetheless not totally worthless, that the matter should be left to a Congress that hasn't acted in 180 years. And the court ruled in favor of Bivens, uh, arguing that under the 14th Amendment, people were entitled to sue federal officers for violations of constitutional rights. Are prior restraints ever permissible? The splintered United States Supreme Court addressed this issue in New York Times versus United States. The question that's really presented to the Supreme Court in the summer of 1971 is how to balance the ideal of national security with the ideal of freedom of speech. The problem in this case is the construction of the First Amendment. Now, Mr. Justice Black, your construction of that is well known, and I certainly respect it. You say that uh, no law means no law, and that should be obvious. And I can only say, Mr. Justice, that uh, to me it is equally obvious that no law does not mean no law, and I would seek to, con- to, uh, uh, to persuade the court that that is true. Uh, the Pentagon Papers is really like a turning point in public support for the Vietnam War because Ellsberg had leaked all of his, all the documents about how um, the United States was losing the war, wasting a lot of money, and uh, doing all of that at great cost uh, in terms of American lives and um, Vietnamese lives. Younger is a communist professor who's trying to capitalize on this interest in California surrounding the connection between exploitation of black people in the United States and the mandates of capitalist empirical projects and um, the Cold War. The, I forget what it's called, but the DeKalb case that we read in Fed Courts is also people protesting the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. Younger, the DeKalb case and the Pentagon Papers are all just sort of like these residual challenges from the late 60s, really, that end up in the Supreme Court's control just because they were sort of like in the ether when the uh, step, like the composition of the Supreme Court was very uncertain. Yeah. And the record your honors will find is replete with instances where uh, 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 leaks of confidential secret, top secret material have been given to the press. Or the press has found them out and published them. And of course, nothing has happened. um, This is from The Brethren Inside the Supreme Court by Bob Woodward at the end of the chapter about the 1970 term. Shortly after, after the Pentagon Papers decision was announced, Griswold asked to see the chief. He informed Berger that he had been privy to some extremely reliable leaks on voting patterns within the court, and that he regularly learned which cases would come down each Monday. He had known precisely when the Pentagon Papers case would be announced, Griswold said, 
and he wanted to tell the chief earlier, but had decided to wait until the term's work was complete. Griswold expressed concern about the confidentiality of the conference. He did not elaborate, but he remarked simply that some members of his staff knew some clerks at the court. The chief thanked him. It was clear when Berger brought the issue up at conference that he was upset. The FBI, he said, should interview each clerk and conduct lie detector tests. Personally, Berger said, he avoided the possibility of leaks by not telling his own clerks about votes or discussion at the conference. You can tell he doesn't talk to his clerks by reading his opinions, Brennan later remarked. When the other justices objected to the lie detector tests, the chief backed down and appointed a committee on security to be chaired by Potter Stewart and to consider the matter further. Um, I'm Jeff Stone, for those of you who don't know me. So at any given time in the Supreme Court, there are many doctrines that are moving towards a certain end. And you can see where they're headed, even though the court hasn't decided to take step three before it takes step two. In a number of areas, the court, again, just stopped. It literally put up a stop sign. So 1972 uh, sees Furman v. Georgia, uh, which was the big death penalty case of the Burger Court. There are a number of cases in the Burger Court where they address the death penalty in one way or another, but this is probably the most well-known one. Furman, the criminal defendant, files a challenge to his death sentence on the grounds that the death penalty violates the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. The court, in a 5-4 decision, uh, holds for Furman, holding that the death penalty as currently construed does violate the Eighth Amendment, but the decision itself uh, comes in like a one-paragraph per curiam opinion. Beyond just the top-level holding of the unconstitutionality of the death penalty, the majority can't agree on any kind of consent. They can't find any consensus on the rationale. As a consequence, there are a range of issues that existed up to 1973, roughly, were clearly headed along a certain path and then got stopped dead and now become sort of oddities. Now you look back and you say, what were they doing there? The Burger Court just changed the direction of the, of the, of the track and prevented any further development of this. Um, and, and again, the explanation there is the Burger Court would never have taken the first step and didn't want to overrule the first step, so it sits there as, a, as an oddity. The dissent was relatively cohesive, especially compared with the majority. It was all four of the Nixon appointees, Berger, Blackman, Powell, and Rehnquist, making what is essentially kind of an originalism argument because 40 states maintained the death penalty and the fact that societies have been executing people for centuries uh, suggested that it was foundational in a way that uh, could not be found to be cruel and unusual under the Eighth Amendment. If we have a, a prison inmate who has been convicted of aggravated rape and sentenced to life, a mandatory life sentence uh, under a statute that forbids parole, and the inmate escapes and commits another aggravated rape, what punishment do you think would be appropriate? That, that of course, is not the case presented here, but it's... The Furman decision held that the death penalty violated the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment, and that every death penalty statute would have to be revisited to cure deficiencies with um, discrimination or various procedural defects associated with death penalty statutes. 
And so as a consequence, they were all they were all de facto ruled unconstitutional. Um, and so every state had to go back to the drawing board. Georgia, uh, one of the most famous and bloodthirsty states, promptly revised their death penalty statute and found itself in front of the Supreme Court four years later. That is correct. Of course, Petitioner Coker was incarcerated. I'm not in- talking about Coker. I was asking your view uh, as to whether or not uh, that could ever be a situation where, absent any other punishment, capital punishment would be appropriate for repetitive crimes of rape. Well, we think that the objective indicators that the court pointed to in Greg uh, would indicate that society where a life has not been taken, the death penalty is inappropriate to protect a value other than life. What, what deterrence would exist uh, in the circumstances I've described? Uh, 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 certainly, if... if uh, I guess the best place to uh, start is in the late 60s, there was a lot of indeterminacy about where the law of abortion was going to wind up. Last June 29th, this court decided the capital punishment cases. Yes, sir. Do you feel that there is any inconsistency in the court's decision in those cases outlawing the death penalty with respect to convicted murderers and rapists? at one end of lifespan, and your position in this case at the other end of lifespan. It wasn't really thought at that time that the Supreme Court was going to end up just laying down some kind of constitutional line that would resolve the abortion issue for everyone. He quoted Blackstone in 1765, and he observed in his commentaries that life. And the only reason that Blackman ends up writing the opinion is because he's one of the most junior justices on the court. He used to be counsel for Mayo Clinic, so he has some idea of legal arguments for deferring to the judgment of doctors. We hold it when you quote Blackstone. Is it not true that in Blackstone's time, abortion was not a felony? That, that's true, uh, Your Honor, but uh, what my point It's considered there. really embarrassing to write about lady stuff, and Berger mm-hmm. and the other senior members in the majority are just like, we'll make Harry do it, and then Harry Blackman ends up writing one of the most important Supreme Court opinions. Yeah. That the medical profession itself is not in agreement as to when life begins. Uh, but from a layman's standpoint, medically speaking, we would say that at the moment of conception from the chromosomes, well, then you're speaking of potential of life, which, yes, sir. with which everyone can agree, perhaps. On the seventh day, uh, I think that the heart, in some form, starts beating. On the twentieth day, uh, practically all the facilities are there that you and I have, Your Honor. Uh, so, the next case we want to talk about is from 1973. There are some parents representing their children. Uh, Dare you say the English? San Antonio School District against Rodriguez. In uh, San Antonio Independent School District v. Rodriguez, some parents of uh, children in San Antonio schools brought suit because the funding mechanism for the school district was based on local property taxes. They argued that this funding mechanism 
violated the Equal Protection Clause because it treated these uh, students differently because they were from poor neighborhoods uh, as opposed to students from rich neighborhoods. And uh, the differential treatment was with respect to uh, their right to an education, which the plaintiffs argued was a, a fundamental right. Do you know of any case from this court which has ever held that it would be unconstitutional for a state simply to get out of the business of public education bag and baggage? But a state could do exactly that. If it aren't, why do you, aren't there several why cases? Do you see that a minimum education may be a constitutional requirement if the state could get out of it entirely? And the way that they put this is that uh, wealth or socioeconomic class is not a uh, quote-unquote suspect classification uh, and suspect classifications are entitled to heightened protection under the 14th Amendment. So the suspect classifications um, are typically uh, race or gender, um, but socioeconomic class is not considered one of those classifications. But then the other part of this was that uh, the court also disagreed with them about the nature of education, arguing that it was not a uh, fundamental right. In the years leading up to 1972-73, the Warren Court in particular had basically concluded that certain inequalities involving certain individual interests cannot be justified by mere rational basis review, but have to be subjected to a more demanding justification. That doctrine, which was central to the Warren Court jurisprudence, essentially has been frozen in time as of Rodriguez. About as straight from the horse's mouth as you can get. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of um, norm bending around this time. Part of the transitional location of the Burger Court as having this faction of truly ambitious liberal ideologues, and at the same time, these people who are appointed expressly for the purpose of rolling back the gains from the Warren Court. There's clerks leaking stuff all the time. There's justices leaking stuff. Mm -hmm. So a lot of how we know so much about the Burger Court is really only possible because so many justices and clerks are talking on the periphery of the Supreme Court because they're so upset about how, how it's going. Yeah. And he would come back from conference on some of those days when he was losing 5-4, and he would literally weep at times at how frustrating it was that he saw them dismantling the framework of constitutional law that he and others on the court had worked to create. And I think it's interesting to think about all of this going on in the context of Nixon. The 60s have sort of tapered off. Vietnam is in full swing and uh, nobody's happy about it. It's increasingly clear that American governmental institutions are not particularly inclined towards being responsive to people's needs or um, any kind of grander notion of justice. There were three people, I think it's fair to say, that Brennan really disliked. Uh, Joseph McCarthy, Richard Nixon, and Warren Burger. <laughs> and uh, Brennan wasn't alone in that. I think all of the other justices disliked Burger. He was pompous and officious and had no subtlety. Another broad trend that's going on in the background while the, Warren, while the Burger Court is in, um, deciding all of these uh, then inconspicuous cases is the departure from 
what's sometimes called the instrumentalism of the 20th century. If we act greatly in meeting our responsibilities abroad, will we remain a great nation. And only if we remain a great nation will we act greatly in meeting our challenges at home. That epic in the in federal governance is just going to be like ground entirely in the hall. Let us be bold in our determination to meet those needs in new ways. There, there's this broad bipartisan willingness to move into this era where instead of having this bitterness all the time about what the government needs to do for this or that group of people, the, the like New Deal mode of interest group adjudication at the government level, mm. what's going to happen instead is like, we're all just going to get rich. So building a new era of progress at home requires turning away from old policies that have failed. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a kind of like bad faith neutrality uh, mm -hmm. with respect to the different kinds of like people or institutions that exist in society. But I think this is another kind of like fundamental failure of uh, liberalism as like a political or legal philosophy is this kind of like pretense to neutrality and not treating capital and its attendant institutions as just kind of fundamentally suspect and worthy of contempt. Abroad and at home, the key to those new responsibilities lies in the placing and the division of responsibility. We have to live too long with the consequences of attempting to gather all power and responsibility in Washington. Abroad and at home, the time has come to turn away from the condescending policies of paternalism, of Washington knows best. A person can be expected to act responsibly only if he has responsibility. This is human nature. So let us encourage individuals at home and nations abroad to do more for themselves, to decide more for themselves. Let us locate responsibility in more places and let us measure what we will do for others by what they will do for themselves.